loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Mindy Fried. Mindy's the author of four books, including Caring for Red, a Daughter's Memoir, which was a finalist for the International Book Awards, and Taking Time, Parental Leave Policy and Corporate Culture. She's a sociologist and principal of Arbor Consulting Partners, where she helps organizations improve their programs and policies. Mindy teaches sociology at Boston College and also co-produces community arts festivals in Boston that bring together people across race, culture, and class. Social historian Stephanie Kuntz, author of The Way We Never Were, American Families and the Nostalgia Trap, calls Caring for Red a deeply moving account of the rewards and challenges that emerge as an adult child becomes the caregiver for a beloved and formerly fiercely independent parent. The practical, I know something about that myself, the practical lessons Fried learned will be especially helpful to the millions of Americans facing this transformation in the future. Welcome, Mindy. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here. Great to have you, and thank you for your book. It's it's um, along the lines of, I think, probably my favorite um, type of nonfiction book, which is teaching through story. Um, <laughs> you you well blended the two, and um, I feel as if I developed quite a relationship with your dad. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I wasn't a red diaper baby, as you were, but I was uh-huh. the, the daughter of a uh, civil rights worker. Oh, great. And my dad was gone a lot in dangerous situations mm-hmm. in my childhood. And so yeah. um, I related to that that experience of... Um, parents making fierce decisions that are not mm-hmm. so easy on kids, yeah? Yeah, well, you know, I think that, um, you know, I don't think that my father felt that he had a choice. Uh, when he was a labor organizer back in the 1940s and um, had been an actor, probably was a very articulate and, uh, you know, effective organizer, and he got subpoenaed by the House and American Activities Committee. Um, so, you know, he didn't have much of a choice to, you know, ha- struggle with a decision about what to do, and, and he made a choice to challenge the committee and really um, stand up for what he believed in. So, yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting, too, Cheryl, to hear him described as formerly fierce because <laughs> he did his best towards the end to maintain that fierceness. But, um, you know, when you're 97, nearly 98, that's hard to pull off. (laughs) Isn't it? Yeah. And um, also, I think uh, we're not often helped by, I I watched the way many people related to my parents as they Mm -hmm. aged and how much of who they were disappeared, not because it wasn't still very present with them, but mm-hmm. because they were just seen as old people. 
Yeah. And there's sort of a generic um, diminishment of all of the qualities of a person that then I think probably affects the person themselves because they're not mirrored in their environment. Do you think that affected your dad? Well, you know, there's some really interesting literature about, you know, what aging is about. And some people think that it's about disengagement. But there's some more newer theories that talk about the importance of staying engaged and, and, you know, active. And so what I've seen and what is pretty much reflected in the literature is if, if people stay involved to the extent that they can, their world shrinks less. And I think mm. that what my father did um, in a fairly miraculous way is he, you know, first of all, his health stayed pretty sharp, you know, pretty uh, solid towards the end. I mean, he was um, healthy up until maybe, I mean, he was doing fine up until about 96. So that's pretty miraculous. Um, but he was very involved with uh, theater and political activist stuff. And he had been teaching in his last chapter of his life. So he still had a university community. So maintaining these connections, these friendships and colleagues with folks who, um, you know, kind of stating, helped him stay engaged, really helped him a lot. And, um, you know, I guess one thing that I kind of walk away with from that is, you know, how important it is for us as we age to maintain friends of all ages. And, you know, so as our, hopefully our, our friends who are our same cohort uh, don't die off too soon. But, you know, when people, <laughs> you know, if we do survive them, we'll still have people around us. You know, that that's an interesting thing, too, because um, I find it sometimes difficult to break the age barrier. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm close to a lot of younger family members. Yeah. Uh, because they're around me enough to, to see that I'm not, you know, divisible like that. But uh-huh. um, in terms of making friends with younger people, this show helps. But it is it is an issue to an extent, and it yeah, takes I, it takes more persistence. I think. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, um, I realized that about four years ago, an old friend of mine contacted me to see if I wanted to. Uh, organize a, a music festival, and at the time I was still um, grieving the loss of my dad, and I just didn't have it together to dive into something like that. But she came back a year later, and I said yes. And first of all, she's ten years younger than me, so that's cool. <laughs> but, <laughs> but being in the world of you know artists, musicians, um, has been a real godsend in terms of just exposure to people from all different backgrounds and all ages and. You know, I, I really, I treasure that um, very much. But I think you're right. Uh, you know, you have to be intentional. And um, people still, I'm sure that a lot, of, a lot of people still see me or, you know, people of, quote, unquote, our age as, um, you know, not as with it or, you know, sort of expectations that we're not going to know how to deal with technology <laughs> or right. whatever. But, um, you know, we kind of need to persist and stay in the world as much as we can. I, I I guess speaking personally to um, the kinds of political things I've gotten involved with out in California have helped mm-hmm. because they're very age diverse. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> very age diverse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Well, you know. But you- then, as you as you were mentioned along the way a little bit, the the decline of the body. Uh-huh. really 
Trump, excuse the expression, overrides <laughs> yeah. um, some of some of that. And um, I wonder if you'd share the the tipping point for your dad, as I see it, um, mm. when when he fell. That seems to have been a a physical tipping point. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I, you, so perhaps I could read a little section from the book. Is that what Absolutely. you're thinking? Absolutely. That would be great. Okay, okay terrific. Um, okay, so um, throughout his life, my father had the ability to doze any time, day or night. His eyes would get heavy and suddenly he was out, mouth slightly ajar and muscles relaxed, only to emerge five minutes later as if there were no intervening pause. When he entered his 90s, he started to struggle with insomnia. This is fairly common among older people, perhaps as a side effect of medications, lack of exercise, or possibly a change in the architecture of sleep. I imagine the construct of sleep as a building with stairs that bring the visitor from floor to floor, juxtaposing dream states with deep sleep. The older we get in this building, the more likely we are to land on floor three instead of two or miss a floor entirely. And when that happens, the mind is less sharp and the body weakened. I also wondered if deeper factors sabotaged my father's restful nights, such as loneliness and guilt or fear of death. Although I spoke with my father nearly every day, I only heard about his sleeping problem in passing. He was not a complainer. He consulted with his physician, Dr. Fine, who who prescribed Ambien, a potent sleep drug. Dr. Fine had been my father's doctor for decades and was someone for whom my father had great respect and loyalty. Dr. Fine was in his early 70s, but people wear their ages differently. With a father who maintained his his lucidity well into his 90s, we were not concerned about the chronology. But Dr. Fine seemed disorganized, and his memory appeared to have major holes. He pondered over decisions, often deferring to my sister and me when we were the ones needing guidance. But mostly we were furious that he'd prescribed Ambien for our father. I had taken Ambien years before when I was recovering from a back injury that made it impossible to sleep, weaving a wicked combination of pain and despair. I lay flat for months waiting to heal and trying various therapeutic approaches. The pain was only getting worse. I was desperate for anything that promised a good night's sleep. I tried a variety of sleep medications, among them Ambien. Uh, When my father began to struggle with insomnia, I understood his desperation, but Dr. Fine never acknowledged that this drug was the beginning of a long slope downward. Our trust in him was broken. Uh, After taking his prescribed dose of Ambien, my father woke up in the middle of the night to urinate, feeling woozy and disoriented. He stumbled toward the bathroom, a familiar route, but something didn't feel right. His head started to swirl. He grabbed for something to steady himself, the wall in the hallway, a doorknob, anything. But he didn't have the strength to hold on. Suddenly and unexpectedly, he collapsed to the floor, which he later described as a violent thud. Over the years, I had seen my father fall many times, even though he exercised daily and had a strong body. But he was impulsive in his movements and sometimes literally moved too fast for himself. I remember one time we were on a walk. He fell and got a gash on his hand. He insisted that we continue, reassuring me he was okay, sprinkling a trail of blood on the tree-filled pathway. But this time it was different. This was a hard fall, and his body was heavy and drugged. He was scared, and he knew immediately he needed help. Grabbing for the emergency button that hung around his neck, the button he had resisted getting for a year, he tried to push, but his fingers lacked the strength. Damn that arthritis, he thought, but he persevered. This one felt like life or death, so he kept trying again and again. Gradually realizing it was futile, he began to drag his body slowly, painstakingly, inching past the hallway into the kitchen to the phone. 
Then the hallucinations began, cloudy visions of indiscernible figures around him, taunting and frightening him. They were telling him something, but he couldn't hear the words. He just knew he was terrified and alone. He reached for the phone, dialed 911, and then collapsed. And I guess I'll stop there. I mean, I kind of keep going on, but uh, yeah. But I think that captured, you know, I've, I've, um, since my mom's death in particular, my dad died suddenly, but my, mm. my mom not. And um, I've thought a lot about, I've, I've done better at putting myself in her shoes mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and realizing that there are these minor ways in which I resist the truth about my um, fragilities. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and that you know, as as her daughter, um, it was so scary and maddening when she did yeah. that. But but I see the temptation, mm-hmm. you know, after a lifetime of being okay. Yep, <laughs> basically, yeah, and being yeah. able to handle anything that comes along physically. Um, right. Even if, if it involves, you know, staying in bed with the flu for a day, you know, you handle right. it. Uh, it's really hard to make that transition, isn't it? Yeah, I think it really is. And I think that, you know, especially, you know, in terms of my dad, for a guy who was in such solid shape, I mean, he, you know, as an actor, he was performing a one-man show at age 90 and did well <laughs> with it. Wow. So, you know. <laughs> You know, that, so, and I think that the truth is that falls are the number one reason that precipitate uh, the um, entrance into an institution for older people. And so, you know, I always say to people, you know, just do your balance exercises, you know, but, you know, falling is scary and um, oftentimes leads to the demise of, of older, very old people. So, uh, and well, I think the, you're right. The other we, thing, you know, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the other thing I learned from that, I had no idea that Ambien was um, dangerous, more dangerous yeah. for older people. That was yes. that was a good piece of information yeah. um, that yeah. you learned along the way that that um, definitely registered with me. Yeah. Well, you know, I knew having taken it myself that it was a potent um, drug, and uh, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know, first of all, that my dad was taking it. And secondly, I didn't know that it was bad for older people until this happened. And he ended up, um, luckily, in going into rehab and getting better. Uh, but I talked to a nurse about it. And she said, oh, my God, no. And I thought, well, that was kind of, for us, that was kind of the beginning of the end uh, of our trust in, in the doctor that my dad had. Um, and, you know, he went on to trust this doctor for quite a while. And we worked on him to eventually change to another doctor but you know I, I think you know yes Ambien is, and probably many other drugs are not good for older people so um, you know we, what we really need in this country is uh, more geriatricians more people who are trained to work with older people and understand uh, the world of medication and the you know kind of the interactions between and among the different meds that older people get and you mm-hmm. know really understand what end of life care is about a- a- amen to that for sure because yeah. it is a yeah. really different uh, field of medicine and yeah. especially with all the talk about um, slow medicine and um, end of life decisions that I'm very exposed to um, mm-hmm. that's that's you know related 
uh, how whether we medicalize old age and to what degree and all of those questions seem very related to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I mean, I think, you know, if we can avoid drugs, then <laughs> good on us. You know, sometimes we can't, but, you know, the more medications people take, the more complicated it gets. Well, one thing that you've referred to, too, which I'd like to start on and then pick up after the break, which we're almost at, is is the... Um, the resistance when you're trying to care for someone who is declining uh-huh. and it's and it's so obvious from the outside um, what the losses are yeah uh, but but the person in it is resisting yeah <laughs> um, whatever it is that you said we had to work on him yeah. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank yeah. you for picking up on that <laughs> I mean uh, well that's that's you know I I've been there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, And and I know about your dad, but my mother was not somebody who was easily worked on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, she um, rightly um, retained control of her life to the very end. Mm -hmm. But then there's the worry on, on 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 our side and how we deal with that. So I'd really like to dive into that after the break. Okay, great. Uh, what that working on looks like. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Mindy Fried at www.mindyfriedfried.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mindy Freed about her book, Caring for Red. And before the break, Mindy, we we were um, just beginning a conversation about this, this um, process of working on <laughs> elders who um, we perceive, rightly or wrongly, to be mm-hmm. in need of a higher level of support than they're getting most most commonly in their homes that's mm-hmm, the big mm-hmm. trans transition from home to a more institutional environment mm-hmm. um, usually um, and you know you you talked about working on your dad about several several things the doctor <laughs> uh, yeah. the move and mm-hmm. I just wondered if you could talk about what that looked like with you and him, this yeah. very powerful guy who had, um, y- you know, been pretty rev- very revolutionary in his life and in his choices, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm pretty sure nobody told him what to do. Least of all his children, probably. Yeah. I'm yes. guess. So Correct. what did that look like for you and your sister to be working on him to get the kind of care you, you believed he needed? So, you know, I think that what strikes me as really key is helping him maintain his identity, his sense of respect, a uh, sense of who he was in the world. Um, and that meant facilitating ways for him to stay connected to people. Um, so as he was, as he hit maybe around 96 or so, um, he actually, maybe he was, I think he was about 96. He had a, a really horrible car accident. Uh, he was driving on a highway. Um, he lived in Buffalo, New York, and he saw a car ahead of him um, that had a mattress on top, and the mattress fell off, and somehow his perception was that he could drive over the mattress and that he'd be okay. <laughs> but what mm-hmm. happened was he drove over the mattress and slammed into this car that, uh, you know, that had lost the mattress. And, um, you know, it was very serious. Uh, you know, he called us later. He said, I'm fine. I walked away. They made me go to the hospital, but I'm fine. And, you know, of course, no surprise, six months later, he started having neurological problems. And uh, a year later, he had major neck surgery because, you know, actually it was a really horrible you know, uh, uh, you know, in- impact on his uh, his spinal cord. So, you know, so trying to get him to not drive, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty dramatic thing to happen. Um, but, you know, I find that certainly with my father, who was very obstinate and uh, strong opinions and so on, you know, he, he resisted, uh, you know, um, not driving. Um, and that as I talk to people, as I've been going around the country and talking to folks about their own caregiving experiences, letting go of driving is, is huge for a lot of people because it's letting go of that freedom, that autonomy. And yes. so, you know, after the accident, I mean, we clearly had some pretty solid evidence that it was not a good idea for him to keep driving. Um, but even then, you know, he persevered. And we finally said, well, look, you know, we just 
can't live with that. You know, we'll find you drivers. And so we ended up hiring his friends who charged us a pittance because they loved him, uh, you know, to drive him here and there. Um, you know, whether it was to see some theater piece, to visit friends, to go out for dinner. Um, and, you know, ultimately, that was kind of the beginning of my managing his social life, um, <laughs> which I, mm. I tried to do with a flourish. But, um, you know, to the issue that I mentioned earlier, just, you know, maintaining his sense of who he was, part of what my sister and I dis- decided we needed to do for him was help him maintain ties with people. And so that was, you know, in some ways, you know, being in touch with folks, finding ways for them to continue to enter his life, whether they brought him out to do stuff or you know, visited him eventually in an assisted living facility where he lived. But, but it was not easy. I, you know, I think to your point, I mean, stopping driving was kind of the beginning. Um, you know, he was actually, you know, he didn't like to think of himself as old, even though he was in his late 90s. And he was teaching an elder hostel with a friend of his who was a lot younger uh, on theater. And he would talk about the people who were in this elder hostel program as if they were really old, but he was at least he was at least <laughs> ten years, sometimes twenty years older than them. Um, it was just his self perception. And so, after one one of these elder hostel sessions, um, it was not too far from where I live, uh, which is Boston. And I went to pick him up, and um, he had been invited to visit LaSalle. Um, Senior Living, which is a, a program that's affiliated with a, a college, LaSalle College. And so I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, it's people who are involved in theater and they're thinking people and he's just hung out with them for a week and they had a great time. And, you know, we got there. Um, they brought us to the dining hall and they're chitting and chatting. You know, very, very social, very animated. And he fell asleep. <laughs> mm. And when we, when we left... From the, that place, and I said, "Well, what do you think? You know, I think you could live there." And he said, "You could throw me off a cliff before I'd live there." <laughs> it was um, just, you know, resistant. And uh, understandably, I, I think, um, you know, I got it. I mean, the only thing that actually led to his moving into assisted living was another, you know, a serious fall. So the, you know, the fall was really the the reason that he was finally willing to accept the fact that. Uh, he he couldn't live independently, and we had visited that place a couple times prior to that. So, you know, he it wasn't an unfamiliar place. Um, but, you know, I, I think it just took uh, a lot of respect, a lot of conversation, and moving much more slowly than we would have wanted to. Of course, reading your book really really brought that process up for me in terms of me and my my mom who's the person that, you know, had the more gradual. And what happened with her is she almost died, and she had absolutely, completely resisted any Uh idea of moving until that happened. And Uh when she was still in the ICU, I need you to find me a place. I need to move right now. Wow. So it went from one to the other, <laughs> both of which were difficult, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, getting her moved while she was recovering from a catastrophic physical <laughs> event was not easy, you know. Yeah. So I, I really yeah. resonated with just the the delicacy of that. And then I was trying to add in, in my head, being at a physical distance mm-hmm. um, because I, she lived near me. 
Um, but your dad didn't, you know, lived at some distance, and that adds a whole other um, kind of wrinkle in the whole. Yeah. Yes, and so it then, does. And then we add relationship, and I know this is a bit of a strange segue, but I wonder if you would read that 13-year-old journal entry, because this is the beginning of a of an atmosphere in which you and your dad lived mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that then had to be kind of um, uh, switched around at the end of life, I would, I would think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it, when I think about this, first of all, that um, I have always been a writer and I kept a solid journal, but, you know, lucky me with all the junky journals that I've found about, you know, I wish so-and-so liked me or, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> I happened to find a journal entry from that particular period of time uh, when my dad was subpoenaed. So, um, so yeah, I'm happy to read uh, a little segment from that. Um, So here we go. Um, A couple of weeks ago, my father was subpoenaed to come to a hearing under the House Un-American Activities Committee. He figured out a marvelous speech so as to get it clear to them that they were un-American, yet he did not get himself convicted. He told them in a way that they were intimidated. Thirteen people, including himself, were subpoenaed. There was some violence. One 15-year-old got locked in a cage for screaming and yelling while her father was on the stand, by the way, just uh, parenthetically. I learned later that she wasn't really in a cage, but that's how my 13-year-old brain kind of heard that. Uh Um, My sister and brother-in-law picketed for the first day the hearings were held, but in the afternoon, they were admitted into the hearing. The second day, the day my father was on the stand, they got in also because they were family. Also, mother went both days. My father was on the news on TV. He gave an excellent testimonial, and his picture was in the paper with a story of all he said and did. Also, the other subpoenaed had pictures and articles in the paper about them. The committee left in a rush in order to get away from people who are anti-HUAC. Practically everyone's against them. Tonight, a lady called up and said, is this the Freed's residence? I answered and I said, yes. She then said, I wish you people would go back where you came from. She called up again and I hung up on her. That scared me a little. We also have a tap on our line. I explained to my best friend the whole idea about this HUAC, and I think I set her thinking straight, but I got shaky and scared. Bye now. Then I say, P.S. This guy walked up to my father and held out his hand to shake. My father said, get out of here, you informer. It turns out this guy told the House on American Activities Committee that my father attended one of those communist meetings or something in 1954. Liar. They all lie for the government. <laughs> we got another call in which there was pure silence. My father hung up on them, and we unplugged the phone to get a good night's sleep. But I didn't sleep so well anyways. I'm frightened to find out how my friends will react and who are my real friends. The reason that that passage resonated so much with me is that um, I, you know, these these kind of generic issues about uh, elders aging and how we take care of them, it's not really like that. You're, all those issues come into relationships that, that are uh-huh. complicated and, and decades and decades and decades long. Uh-huh. And um, that history of your dad and you and, and how that affected you, as I said at the beginning, it was so woven into how you both navigated the yeah. end of his life. Yeah. And um, yeah. really, really affect, that affects things, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, 
Um, you're absolutely correct. And you know, now when I hear that, this, you know, he was the communist. I mean, he actually was a communist. I found out many years later that he was in the Communist Party and that he, out of loyalty, when he quit the party, didn't want to tell anybody that he quit the party. Um, he, he really wanted his, he didn't want being in the Communist Party party to be perceived as a negative thing, and, and he didn't want his friends to be perceived that way. So, you know, there are many layers. I mean, uh, you know, I think in those days, um, you know, as a younger person, uh, I, I just idolized him, and, you know, he was brilliant and multifaceted, um, but the older I got, the more complicated the relationship got, and the more I started seeing him as a, you know, a human being with frailties and, uh, you know, who was, you know, sometimes pretty difficult to be around. Um, you know, some of the, that boldness, a sense of, uh, you know, uh, standing up for his beliefs and, and really, you know, kind of pushing himself out there also was abrasive at times and didn't leave a, a lot of space, um, you know, in the room. So, you know, it took me a lot of years to figure out uh, how to assert myself, how to, you know, meet that. Um, but, you know, life is long, and luckily he gave me a lot of years of it, and our relationship evolved, um, you know, with a lot of love and respect. And, you know, he ultimately, you know, I think that my love for him was so deep that, uh, you know, there were times that I, I thought, wow, if he died now, you know, I don't know if I could take it. Uh, but he, you know, luckily stuck around long enough so that I had worked through enough issues uh, to have some insights and, you know, to be able to kind of, you know, tolerate or work through the grief. And and I don't know if this happened for you, but I was thinking a lot as I read your book about um, the way in which my parents' passing has made me clearer on who they were as people, mm-hmm. which yeah. informs a lot of who I am, maybe yeah. even more than the relationships between us, who they were and what they did in their lives. It, mm-hmm, it, well, I mean, I don't want to say more or less even, but um, definitely profoundly influences how I look at being an adult. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I, yeah. I sort of um, imagine that might be true for you, too, that those things that were indeed had difficulties associated are also, you know, very precious to me. Um, mm-hmm. the, the work that each of my parents did individually in the ways they stood up for justice and, you know, mm. who they were really, um, I, I uh, value very much. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I think that you're right. Sometimes it takes, it takes some distance to be able to see it in that light. Um, I think, you know, in, in my case, my father was the, the obvious kind of rabble rouser, outspoken person. Um, my mother was angry, depressed, um, but she was an artist, and she was very talented. And, um, you know, it, it took years for me to actually allow that to surface, um, that, mm. you know, when I was a child, she, she wrote music, kids' songs. It was she's, this whole series of animal songs, and we actually went into a studio, and we recorded it, and my father was the narrative voiceover, and um, I had a... I, <laughs> I had a solo. I got to sing a song called My Little Kitty. 
was adorable. Uh, and uh, I was in the chorus of, did you ever get to know a little worm? And, you know, you think about, I mean, now as a mom, um, you know, what, what it took for her to make a decision to um, develop her art in a way that incorporated her kids uh, and, you know, Indeed. was very children-focused. Um, so, you know, I think I, I, I agree that, you know, having, having some distance um, allows you to see this, things a little bit, I don't know, more clearly, but to see a little bit more. And, I mean, for me, to accept my mother a little bit more for who she was and, uh, and to see my father as, you know, human in all his strengths and challenges. And also to see see more the impact he had on other people. That was so clear in your book. Uh, yeah. What a profound influence he had on oh my God, a, whole, yeah. a whole generation of actors and yeah. playwrights yeah. and yeah. Um, political thinkers. And uh, that that really stood out, too, in terms of, you know, who he was and how that did, in fact, carry him through his life. People continued to value yeah. him in that way. Right. I mean, he was very lucky in that way. And, you know, sometimes I think back to uh, the funeral for him where, um, you know, be- before the service started, uh, my sister and I and other family, you know, my daughter and my husband and a couple other people, we stood in line to so-called receive people. And, you know, I thought, well, this is about them consoling us, but actually... There, there were well over a hundred people, and, and everybody was crying. You know, it's like, oh, your father meant so much to me, and you know, and, you know, I heard these stories about the, um, you know, these personal connections that that he'd had, and it was very moving. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that um, even now there was a group of of his theater friends who used to, you know, the book um, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch mm-hmm. Album. Um, yes. Well, my dad actually played Maury in in the play, um, and I knew Maury because he was a professor in the sociology department where I got my PhD, and so when my, na- my dad was going to um, play that role, um, I introduced him to a lot of people who had been with Maury when Maury was um, declining, and when my can we fin- father- I'm sorry to interrupt, but can we finish that story after the break? Um, because oh, it's yeah, time sure. for another break. We'll come right back to it. Uh, and okay, and listeners, while we're on the break, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, to the Good Grief host page. And to find Mindy Freed, go to www.mindyfried, and it's F-R-I-E-D.com. Back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Mindy Freed, who beautifully describes her relationship with her father and her caring for him at the end of his life and caring for Red. And and Mindy, before the break, you were um, talking about your dad playing um, Maury from Tuesdays with Maury and uh-huh. the, the, <laughs> the kind of connection there, which I was fascinated by, but wanted to give its full due. So can you uh-huh. um, continue yeah. with that story? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, just to kind of put the end to the Maury piece, so my dad did perform Maury in Tuesdays with Maury, but then a couple years later when he was living in an assisted living facility, there were a group of his own theater friends who created a group called Mondays with Manny. And (laughs) every (laughs) Monday they would go visit him uh, without fail Uh, bring lunch, Um, you know, as he started to kind of fade, he was less engaged at times, but people would always tell me that sometimes he'd be sitting there really quietly and all of a sudden he'd enter the conversation 100% on target and really lucid. So, you know, he... (laughs) So, so there was this incredible um, network of people who really adored him and stuck by him. And he was, again, you know, quite, quite lucky to have that. Absolutely, because, um, you know, relationship is what makes all this doable, isn't it? Yeah. In some ways, um, either between us and our parents or... um, other people who kind of show up um yeah difference between heaven and hell in my mind uh-huh. but <laughs> <laughs> it also you know in terms of my own experience as a caregiver um i was something i did not expect was that his social life his social world and social network was also going to become in a way mine um you know as i said part of what i did was i arranged his social life so that meant, you know, letting people know when he was available, um, if he was up for going out, letting folks know that. And eventually, you know, it was more really about people coming to visit him. And those folks started to become my friends, and they continue to be my friends to this day. So I, you know, I lost my father in many ways, but I gained all these people who were a part of his world um, which became very rich. Um, about well, this is you know years after my dad died in 2011, and the book just came out a year ago. But um, a group of of his friends and I formed a little committee. Um, these are his friends from Buffalo, and 
we organized um, a weekend, which they wanted to call Freed and Freed, and it was, you know, somewhat about my dad. There was, you know, uh, a section of one of his plays that was performed during this whole weekend event, but it was also a reading, and then I also did a a panel discussion about aging and caregiving um, uh, with some other folks who were more policy-oriented, and, you know, so I got to meet. Um, on the phone on a regular basis with you know people from Mondays with Manny and other this other other little circles that he was a part of and and put on this thing together so you know one never knows uh, the process of of caregiving can move in many directions absolutely I'm I'm of course a good example because my life is formed around um, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> things I, I learned and people I came to know in, in my yeah. caregiving. Um, but but I wanted to, um, lest we make this sound easier than it is, yeah. um, talk about the extreme impact of caregiving. Uh-huh, uh-huh. One part of your book that seemed to capture that somewhat is, is the... Um, is the section about the night your phone rang um, uh-huh, with, uh-huh. you know, because um, I, I think it must be very common for people to have extreme um, psychological events uh, yeah. towards the end of their lives. And yeah. that has such a big impact on us as carers. Yeah. Um, and, and I, um, I want to capture that a little too. Would you, would you share that part of your book? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Here we go. Um, One night, my phone rang at 2 a.m. I awoke from a deep sleep and ran downstairs, just grabbing the phone in time. Min, he whispered, I'm in a situation here. What's up, I asked him. They're trying to get me, Min. Trying to remain calm, I asked him who was trying to get him, and he replied, the people here, sounding terrified. This place is terrible. They warehouse old people here, Min. They've locked me in. You have to come right away and get me out of here. I took a deep breath and asked him if he was alone, knowing that there was or should be a paid caregiver with him. She's in the other room, he told me, but she's with them. And then he whispered loudly, you've got to get me out of here right away. My living room was dark and I lowered myself onto the couch, aware of the cold air, as I grabbed a nearby blanket and wrapped it around my body. I knew that I had to enter his world. That was the only way I could reach him to help him feel safe. I could see that he felt trapped, and the reality was that he was trapped on a road toward the inevitable. His paranoia, while not based in any real-time truth, resonated with his past experience of being followed by the FBI for more than three decades. Somehow, perhaps, he was conflating his deepest fears with the reality of his current circumstance. I knew that I could reach him, to speak to him as the daughter he trusted and loved. So I asked him simply, do you trust me, Dad? Yes, he replied, and I said, I'm going to tell you what I think is going on. Will you listen to me? Yes, he said. I began, you spent a lot of your life being pursued by the FBI. That was real. Are you listening to me, Dad? Yes. There were people who tried to destroy you for many years, Dad, and you fought them throughout your life. Yes, he agreed. You're living in an institution now, Dad, I told him. While it may have been better for you to live with us, it didn't turn out that way. When you were more together and your health was good, you wanted to stay in Buffalo. Am I right? I asked him. Yes, right, Min, he replied. And now you're in an institution where you don't have the same control you had over your life, and that's a real drag. He agreed. But, Dad, are you still listening to me? Yes, Min, he said. No one's trying to get you there, Dad. It may feel like that, but you're stuck in a place where you don't want to be, and that makes it feel like prison. But it isn't a prison. Are you still listening to me? Yes. Yes. 
And do you trust that I will tell you the truth? Yes. I took a deep breath. Even though my sister and I are doing our best to ensure the best care for him, he's stuck in this netherworld, this purgatory between the life he actively lived and created and the very end of that life. I asked him if I could speak with the caregiver, and she got on the phone. I discovered his hallucinations were scaring her that instead of focusing on his needs, she went into the other room, leaving him alone. She rationalized this response, telling, them, telling me that he needed to be alone. I was furious, but I left that problem until later. At the time, I told her to stay with him, and I asked her to put him back on the line. I explained to him that the caregiver was there with him and that she would protect him. I reminded him that we loved him very much and told him with a touch of guilt that we would be seeing him over the weekend, a time that seemed light years away. And I reminded him one more time that he had a reason to be paranoid for many years and that maybe his medications were making the situation worse and that I'd check on them as well. After talking to him for more than an hour, he'd seemed to calm down. Reversing the past roles of child and parent, I asked him, do you feel safe now? Yes, Min, he said. And do you think he can, you can fall asleep? Yes, he replied. We hung up, and I tried with little success to get back to sleep. <laughs> that that so captures it. He probably did go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. But maybe not you. <laughs> but I did not. <laughs> and I think that that's cool. really the essence of it, is that, you know, the, the burden, there is a ton of logistical work involved in caregiving. Uh, you, you know, so much that's involved in trying to ensure the safety, uh, you know, of your loved one and, you know, and being there for them. But, you know, beyond that, it's just the emotional uh, burden, the, the emotional responsibility that makes it all so much more difficult. Um, and not to and mention think, anticipatory uh, you know, grief. Go ahead, and, sorry. Not to mention anticipatory grief and... Yeah. Um, you know, loss experiences and all of the emotional part, but that captures the physical part as well. Yeah, of just absolutely. Being, being awakened, being on call, trying to juggle all of those, all of those things. Right, and you know, I, I, I think that you know, you, there's that kind of being in this netherworld yourself. You know, he was there, but so were we, and. Is I mean, when he died, I was in Kansas. I wasn't even with him, um, which I know for many people is a huge issue that they feel that they missed that final moment. But um, I felt that I'd been so present for him um, so much of the time that I somehow managed to not feel guilty about that. Um, but, you know, we were, my sister and I both were trying to, you know, balance a work life with a caregiving life, and that is... Such a classic challenge and, for anybody and the, who's caregiving. Yes, and the fact is you don't know when the moment is going to come. Yeah. So you, yep. unless you know it's coming extremely soon and you just drop everything for that period exactly. of time, yep. it's actually quite likely that you'll be doing something. Exactly. <laughs> that isn't that. I know. So right. um, <laughs> that's such a common experience. But before we get off, because we only have a few, about four minutes left, I really want to hear what you're doing now with, obviously, you've written a book. I'm sure you're going out into the world and, and sharing some of what you learned with him <laughs> that, that uh, I think your perspective as a sociologist helped you really make sense that's useful to other people about that. And I oh, wondered what... What's what's coming of that for you? Well, you know, this has actually been 
quite a treat. Um, you know, I, I worked with a very small press, Vanderbilt University Press, and they were fantastic to work with. Um, and but this, you know, a small academic presses do not have the capacity to you know set up a book tour. Um, but I had through other work I'd been doing, I had enough experience with, you know, using social media and reaching out to folks. And I'm quite connected to an amazing feminist sociology organization called Sociologists for Women in Society. Um, I know tons of people all over the country who are, you know, a part of that organization. So when I decided I wanted to do a book tour, I first uh, crowdsourced it with this group, um, SWS. And I'd say about 20 of my friends and colleagues got back to me and said, you know, here's an independent bookstore here and here's another place you might speak there. And so I just kind of got on it. And so for the past year, I've been going out and about and talking <clears throat> about the book. And um, it's uh, I've spoken in universities, in independent bookstores. And, you know, there is still a wonderful infrastructure of independent bookstores around the country, which is very exciting to discover. Uh, and I've spoken to faith-based communities. I've gone to a continuous care facility. And it's been not just, you know, I'd say in some ways, you know, the experience of writing is, is some people will say writing is experiencing life twice. In some ways, you're, you know, to write something that is accessible, um, you somehow have to relive it in a way that is communicated to people. And as a sociologist, I wanted to incorporate a larger, more universal perspective, incorporate some of the literature that I know about aging and caregiving. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so I found that in talking with folks, it, it, it was not just fun to talk about my own story. I started getting kind of sick of that, but I really enjoyed <laughs> hearing that um, other people's stories, I, that, that somehow, I guess by being open, uh, being vulnerable, and sharing the truth of my story, other people were willing to share the truth of their story. And so I've gotten to hear many stories that people have had, that people have experienced, um, people telling their dreams, talking about the challenges with siblings, talking about the difficulty of timing and when do you decide when a parent needs to be in an institution, or you know, talking about how you work with practitioners. There's so many issues um, that we've that we have been able to touch on. And so the result of um, doing this kind of extensive touring, I'm actually, you know, still doing, I'm coming out to California in January. Uh, going oh, maybe to we can meet in person. <laughs> I would love that. That would be great. <laughs> uh, and so, but that's gotten me thinking about radio, actually, and um, the power of podcasting. Um, I mean, I, I did a blog for about seven years and uh, love that. And so radio I'm gonna, is quite I'm going to have to end it there. But yeah. um, that's intriguing, and I hope you'll keep me up to date on what you're doing. I, and I hope people will absolutely. go read the book because it's uh, beautiful and informative. Well, thank so you thank, so much, Cheryl. Thanks for it's being a with to talk me. To you. And, and listeners, go to MindyFried.com to find her book and her and uh, keep up to date with what she's doing next. Next week, I'll have Bill Phillips, author of Expect the Un- Unexpected, about his work as a medium. He first became aware of his gift after his mother died when he was 14. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.